Let's talk about the Rux and Peace pandemic pandemonium. And here again, they're thinking of pandemics as extraordinary global public health emergencies where a disease spreads rapidly across an, uh, an entire region and then eventually across the entire world. It has a high attack rate. It's highly contagious. And I think they're assuming also a, a level of mortality uh, that's a little bit higher, thankfully, than what we're seeing in COVID-19. But they, they are linking this really with a discussion of poverty. And it differs a little bit from the way in which the previous authors discussed poverty. Poverty. So I want to begin by talking about that. They're really looking at poverty from the point of view of how does the relative wealth of the society affected uh, impact the risk to the population. So they point out that during the 1918 influenza epidemic, India, which was the poorest country per capita surveyed, suffered the highest per capita mortality rates, while Denmark suffered the least. And then they go on to ask kind of broader questions about what happens to the social structure of a country when there's a 30% mortality uh, from a pandemic outbreak or from a disease. And again, they mentioned familiar themes about the interconnectedness of the world, about the idea that disease spreads. But I want to return to that idea of what happens if 30% of a population dies of something within a given year. We mentioned at the close of the last article that the president had now seems to be shifting the pandemic response strategy to be uh, something closer to, to developing herd immunity, which means that about 70% of people would eventually have to be infected, which means some two to three million people would eventually have to die. That's an unusual stance for a country with a sophisticated public health infrastructure. So it's kind of an odd repositioning of what it is that the pandemic response would be expected from the US government. But let's just say we had a future pandemic where a higher percentage of people were struck. This is something that we saw during the worst times of the Ebola outbreak in Liberia and Sierra Leone and uh, Zaire. You know, there were there were several countries that were affected there, but but it happened so rapidly. So with that particular disease, up to 40% of the people who caught it died, and they died fairly quickly. And so that means that a disease, a pandemic disease, because it's so highly contagious, it has the ability to wipe out entire sectors. So let Let's just say, as a, a sake of argument, that the pandemic was centered around several institutions, higher education, maybe the justice system, maybe in the post office, maybe among health workers themselves. And you may remember in the case of Ebola, they had to set up these disease camps, which were largely outdoors. They were kind of tent communities. And you remember seeing people enter, doctors and nurses in full hazmat suits. That's because that was so um, highly, highly contagious. But I really think it's worthy of mention and of planning and of forethought to think about what happens if we're confronted with a pandemic that has both a very, very high infection rate, it's highly contagious, and it has a high mortality rate. And what does that do, not just to a poor country, but I think it does especially affect a poor country, but what does it do to a country like the United States if 30% of the people die in a compressed period of time? So I'm going to say a little bit more about AIDS and SARS and kind of some of the social effects that the author really didn't talk about of those particular diseases. But just think about how there's a connection between the society writ large, the social institutions that keep a society functioning, and the public health institutions that respond to pandemics. And when those factors are overwhelmed, I think some very scary things can happen. Mm -hmm.
All right, so um, Roxen mentions that pandemics are expensive, right? So they estimate that the SARS epidemic costs more than $16 billion in Asian countries alone. I think the last count I saw for the total economic effects of COVID-19 within the United States was approaching uh, $6.5 trillion dollars trillion with the t so hugely expensive and i mean you can measure that in a bunch of different ways you can talk about early mortality and healthcare responses and lost economic uh, activity because things had to be shut down or quarantine or um, people getting cut down in the prime of their working lives and kind of the lost productivity that that represents but they mentioned the idea of aids and i really want to talk a little bit more about that because i had some experience in the mid-1990s both in south africa and in Namibia. And so I witnessed firsthand some of the ways in which a widespread pandemic has lasting durational effects on a society. So think about uh, what effect a, a disease like AIDS might have on a developing country or even on a fairly mature industrial economy like South Africa. So one of the things that happened in South Africa is that AIDS spread primarily among straight people, but it was widespread among certain industries. And one of those, unfortunately, industries was truckers and they were spreading the disease they may have had a family back home but they were on the road for long periods of time and so they were infecting populations all along their routes and as the disease started becoming more uh, pandemic and it started spreading uh, increasingly through social spread or within community spread, community spread rather than say a patient zero that infects a lot of other people, you started having the breadwinners of families die. And so when I was in Namibia, uh, I met with some uh, HIV orphans where both the mother and the father had died. Now it was up to, let's say the 13 year old child to support this family of five or six minor children. And that has a radically destabilizing effect on a society when you have um, not just one or hundreds or thousands, but literally millions of cases where the primary breadwinner is struck down in the prime of life. And then the children are left are either orphaned or it becomes a single parent situation where they're struggling with five or six children in a single household. Maybe you might have your neighbor's children because both of your neighbors had perished. Maybe you might have your nieces or nephews with you because your brothers or sisters might have perished. And so it just creates a terrible economic drain on a society and at every level right it lowers the level of social aspirations of those particular populations so one of the stories that we saw and i, I don't you know i suspect that this is fairly widespread but this was an individual case but we met with a young woman who had been a college student but her parents died, and so she dropped out of college, and she went back to her hometown, which was in the, the Namibian capital of Windhoek, and she was taking care of her four minor siblings trying to raise enough money to get them through they had to pay you know school was free but they had to pay for their school uniforms and they had to buy their own books and so she was working uh both as a waitress and also in a call center rather than going pursuing her chosen field which was to become uh, a nurse and there that those types of stories were very commonplace throughout the communities that we met in in South Africa and Namibia. So I just wanted to highlight the idea that there is a social cost 
in terms of lost aspirations and in terms of the drain of society of things like long-term poverty, of lower productivity, of the loss of education as siblings are pulled out of school to care for their uh, younger counterparts, that it's very difficult to measure, but I really reacted strongly and favorably to Ruxin's idea that that's a huge burden, a social burden that maybe we're not very good at measuring. So think about that in conjunction with the idea of letting two to three million people simply die to achieve herd immunity. Mm -hmm.